Hello, and thanks for listening to this sermon from Ethos Chicago. We're a church that worships and serves together in Chicago, Illinois, and you can find us online at ethoschicago.com. Good morning, Ethos. Welcome to Sunday Worship. We're looking forward to seeing everybody in a few minutes for communion, but first let's worship together, beginning with this call to worship from Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that you are always with us and that you are guiding us through every step of this life. And I pray that you would encourage us um, with your presence, um, with your love, as we sing praises, as we listen to the sermon, as we pray. Um, and I pray that you would be glorified in us as we live out our day. In Jesus' name, amen. say 
Let's take a moment now to confess our sins before God, beginning with this prayer of corporate confession. Eternal God, in whom we live and move and have our being, whose face is hidden from us by our sins and whose mercy we forget in the blindness of our hearts, cleanse us from all our offenses and deliver us from proud thoughts and vain desires, that with reverent and humble hearts we may draw near to you, confessing our faults, confiding in your grace, and finding in you our refuge and strength through Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. And now let's take a minute for each of us to confess privately. And now let's hear the words of assurance from Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Jonah 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Hello, Ethos. Good to be with you again. Thanks again for joining us in this time of worship. You know, in his, well, in one of his fairly well-known hymns, the great hymn writer Charles Wesley begins, interestingly enough, with a question. He said, depths of mercy, can there be mercy still reserved for me? You know, I dare say, if we're honest, that's probably a question that we have all asked at one time or another in our lives. Because let me ask you, have you ever messed up? Have you ever blown it? Have you ever, through your own doing, put yourself between a rock and a hard place? And as a result, have you ever wondered, does God still love me? Does God still want to be with me? Does God still care about me? Have you ever wondered how God treats us when we mess up, when we blow it? Well, if you have, you're in the right place today because today I have some encouraging news for you, news that I believe we all need to hear. Today, we're going to learn through a wayward and rebellious prophet about the wonderful mercy of our God. Specifically, today, we are going to learn that God is in the business of delivering those who call out to him. God responds to those who seek his mercy. Today, we're going to continue our study of the book of Jonah by looking at Jonah's prayer that he prayed from the stomach or the belly of a great fish, which is found in chapter 2 of the book of Jonah. 
And we are going to look at the first of three reasons this prayer gives us for reaching out, for crying out to God in our times of need, even needs of our need of our own making. But before we do that, would you join with me in prayer? Father, I pray that this time really would be an encouragement to all of us. Lord, we've all been there. We've all messed up. We've all blown it. We've all wondered, God, do you still love me? Could you still want to be mercy, merciful to me? Is there still mercy reserved for me? And Lord, I pray today that you would answer that through your word. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you would have for us. Bless us with understanding. Bless us with just an ability to, to hear what you would have for us. And Lord, I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, as I mentioned, we are going to continue our study of the book of Jonah by looking at chapter 2. And in chapter 2, what we have basically is a prayer, a prayer that Jonah prayed in the belly of a great fish that had swallowed him, as we read about at the end of chapter 1. And uh, what I hope we see over the next two weeks is that in this prayer, Jonah gives us three reasons Three reasons why we should cry out to God in our times of need. Specifically, Jonah's prayer is going to teach us that our guilt is no match for God's mercy, that our helplessness is no match for God's saving power, and that God's glory is revealed in His mercy. And today we want to look at that first lesson, as I mentioned. Now, before we do so, let me remind us of the context. Hopefully, most of us, if we've been with us, remember the general outline of the story, what's happened so far. God came to Jonah, Jonah, his prophet in the nation of Israel, and told Jonah to go and to cry out against the city of Nineveh because its evil had come up against God, it says. And we learn quickly in verse 3 uh, that Jonah has no intention, no desire to do that. And so instead of heading 500 miles east to the city of Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria, Jonah heads down to the coast, hops on a ship, and tries to head 3,000 miles west to the city of Tarshish, which is in what we know of as Spain. And in response, God hurls a great storm against the ship and after the sailors try everything they can to save the ship and themselves, and after they learn that Jonah is the cause of this problem, this storm, they, they go to Jonah and they ask him, what should we do? And Jonah says in verse 12, pick me up and throw me into the sea, then the storm will be calm for you. Now, we don't have to go over again all the what's and the why's of what would happen then right now. We don't have to do that right now. All we need to know is that is eventually what happened. The sailors pick Jonah up and they throw him over the side of the boat into the raging sea. And just as Jonah said, the storm ceased. And the sailors rejoice and they stand in awe and worship the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth. But if you remember, chapter 1 doesn't end with that. In verse 17, the last verse of the chapter, we read this. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And that's how the chapter ends. God appointing a great fish who comes and swallows Jonah and as a result saves his life. And it's now 
as we come to chapter 2 and to Jonah's prayer, that we learn something really important. We learn that before we get to the fish, before Jonah was swaddled, something very, very important happened. It happened in the water. It happened in the churning sea. It happened as Jonah is very literally sinking to the bottom of the sea. It happened during what Jonah must have thought was the very last moment of his life. And what we see in that moment that Jonah finally does the one and only thing he had left to do. Jonah finally does the one and only thing he could do in that situation that would make any difference. Jonah finally does the one thing that he had stubbornly and willfully refused to do up to this point. Jonah cries out to God. You see, before the fish comes the cry of distress. Before the fish comes the cry of deliverance. And this is why that's so important, because even though Jonah knew he was guilty, even though he knew as a prophet who had disobeyed God, he deserved death, even though he knew that he, or he had every reason to believe that his situation was totally hopeless, totally helpless. Yet in that moment when death was imminent, Jonah remembered that the God whom he had served so imperfectly, to put it mildly, was still, as he says in chapter 4, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and repenting of evil. And remembering that, he cries out to the Lord. And it's then that the Lord appointed a great fish for Jonah's rescue. It's then that the Lord had mercy on this prophet and saved him miraculously in the fish's belly. And that's the sequence. In the fish, Jonah prays, but before the fish, Jonah cries out. And chapter two is what Jonah prayed while he's still conscious, conscious in the fish. He recounts his cry of distress in the water and lifts his voice up and gives a thanks for that deliverance. In fact, verses two through seven are Jonah's remembrance of what happened before he was swallowed. And verses eight and nine are Jonah's words of thanksgiving now that Jonah is safe inside the fish. So when you read this prayer, keep all of this in mind. When Jonah refers to the stress of the past, it means he's referring to the time he spent in the water, not the time he's spending in the fish. The water is the threat of death. The fish is the refuge of salvation. So with that in mind, let us look at this first lesson, which is simply this. Our guilt is no match for God's mercy. Now, let me be clear. There's only one reason that Jonah was in the water that day. He deserved to be. As we saw in chapter 1, God said to Jonah, get up and go, and Jonah got up and went, but in the opposite direction. Jonah wasn't on his way to Nineveh when he found himself in the sea. Jonah was running from God, the God he was appointed to serve as a prophet. Jonah, whose whole identity was to be a prophet, totally wrapped up in what God directed him to do, was guilty of disobeying God's very direct command. And as we've been looking at for the past two weeks, the question is why? Why did God, why did Jonah so obviously and intentionally disobey God? Because God, as we've seen, had exposed something. He'd exposed the idols of Jonah's heart. Jonah was an idolater. Now that may seem strange, but let me tell you what I mean by that. Oh sure, Jonah wasn't carrying around little statues in his pocket that he'd pull out and pray to when he needed something. Oh sure, Jonah would, probably wouldn't even have thought of himself in that way, but make no mistake about it, Jonah was an idolater. See, for the past two weeks, 
We've looked at chapter 1 in the context of defining Jonah's sin, the sin that unfortunately is in all of our hearts. And we said that sin is more than breaking the rules. Sin is, at its essence, building an identity by yourself, for yourself, apart from God and His Word. Or to put it another way, sin is having something besides God at the center of your life, making something else besides God the source of your life's value and worth and significance and joy. And when we talk about sin in that way, what we're really saying is that all sin is rooted in idolatry. It's rooted in the breaking of the first of the Ten Commandments, which says that you shall have no other gods before me. See, all sin, believe it or not, really starts there because the definition of an idol is not rooted in its physicality. No, an idol is anything that we put in front of God, anything that we need more than God, anything that becomes for us the source of our value, our worth, our primary joy, anything like that is just another way of talking about a small g God. And there's no question that Jonah had a small g God in his life. Something had taken the center stage of his life. Something besides God had become his functional salvation, had become the reason he got out of bed in the morning. And that's what was behind, or is behind, Jonah's nationalism, his racism, if you will. And as we've seen over the past two weeks, Jonah is the perfect case study of what it means to have an idol exposed. You see, on this occasion, we see God exposing the idol of Jonah's nationalism and his ethnic and racial pride. For Jonah, these were his pseudo-saviors. This is where he got his affirmation. This is where he got his joy. He got his joy from the fact that he was a leader of God's chosen people, God's blessed people, a people above all other peoples. For all intents and purposes, this was Jonah's righteousness. Oh, sure, Jonah was a prophet of God. Oh, sure, he believed and no doubt worshipped in some sense the God of heaven and the maker of the sea and the earth. But when it came down to it, this wasn't the source of his satisfaction and joy. When it came down to it, there was something else sitting on the throne of Jonah's existence. And that was his intense pride of the fact that he was not like others. He was a Hebrew. He was different. He was better. And so when God challenges Jonah's idol, which is what, Jonah, which was like what God was doing when he tells Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites, Jonah responds the way we kind of all respond when God exposes an idol in our life, when God reveals and begins to take away something that we are getting our value and worth and affirmation from. Jonah runs. Jonah sulks. Jonah shakes his fist. Ultimately, Jonah wants to die because the very thing upon which he has based his life, the very thing that gives his life meaning is falling apart and is being taken from him. And whether we're talking about an individual or the nation, and Jonah is merely just a representation or representative of the state of the entire nation of Israel. God loves us, as I've been saying, too much to let us wallow in the pursuit of things that will, can never and will never satisfy the real longings of our heart, the real longings of our soul. So God shines his light and exposes Jonah, just as he often does with us. He exposes us, and sometimes God takes his knife and he cuts and he performs surgery on our hearts. And that's exactly what he's doing here with Jonah and for the nation of Israel, for that matter, in this story. And Jonah doesn't like it. And when it happens to us, we don't like it either. 
And if you've ever looked at Jonah and asked, how could he do that? I have to ask you, have you looked very hard in the mirror lately? You know, as the great reformer John Calvin noted, noted correctly, we are all idol-making machines. That's the nature of our heart. Our hearts are idol-making machines. And I go through this. I go through all of this because it's possible to impossible to understand the beauty of chapter 2 without understanding the depth of Jonah's sin, without understanding the real problem, which is Jonah's idolatry. And that's why Jonah is in the water. And in a sense, he knows it. As he says in verse 3, he says, You hurled me into the deep. Jonah knows that all this occurred by the sovereign hand of God. It wasn't the sailors, but God ultimately who threw him in the deep, into the heart of the sea. It was God who caused the currents to engulf him and to cover him with the breakers and the billows of the sea. It was God who brought him to this extreme place between this life and the next. It was no accident. It was not some capricious act. Jonah was guilty and under the judgment of God, and Jonah was there because he deserved to be. And I don't believe Jonah would argue with that. And that's why he says in verse 4 of chapter 2, I said, I have been banished from your sight. And you sense Jonah hears God saying, I don't even want to look at you anymore. Get out of my sight. And sometimes we feel that way, don't we? We feel like we've messed up so badly. God doesn't want to have anything to do with us anymore. He doesn't even want to look at us, let alone shower, shower us with mercy. You know, I was reminded this week of A.W. Tozer's great book, The Knowledge of the Holy, which is all about the attributes of God. And there's a great chapter on God's attribute of goodness. And Tozer defines goodness this way. He says, the goodness of God is that which predisposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward man. He says the whole outlook of mankind might be changed if we could all believe that we dwell under a friendly sky and that the God of heaven, though exalted in power and majesty, is eager to be friends with us. And isn't that true? We so often wonder that, don't we? Do we really dwell under a friendly sky? Is God and all his power and majesty really eager to be friends with you and me? Is God really disposed to use his power and authority and majesty for our good? And Tozer goes on to explain why this is such a hard thing, hard thing that we have, well, we have, why we have such a hard time believing this. He says, but sin, sin has made us timid and self-conscious as well it might. Years of rebellion against God have bred in us a fear that cannot be overcome in a day. The captured rebel does not enter willingly the presence of the king he has so long fought unsuccessfully to overthrow. Do you hear what Tozer is saying? It's profound, and I believe it's right on the money. Here's the real problem. One, not the only one, but the main, one of the main reasons that we have such a hard time believing that God is good and merciful and that we might approach Him, expect him to, expecting Him to be good and merciful toward us has to do, of course, with our sin, with our understanding of our own unworthiness. And yet here's where all this leads. And here's what is so encouraging about this passage with no other alternative. Jonah, knowing of his guilt, knowing of his own worthiness, having a feeling of it, ventured to cry out for deliverance to the very God who threw him into the water in the first place. 
the very God who he thought no longer wanted to even look on him. Jonah cried out to this God, and Jonah was right to do so. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And here's the point. And I dare say, if you remember nothing else, remember this. God's purposes always include redemption. God's purposes always, always include redemption. I know it's so hard to believe. When I think of my own inadequate parenting, for instance, I'm reminded of those rare occasions. Now, those occasions when my kids would mess up and out of my anger, far too often, what I wanted to do was to shame them, to, to make them pay, to get even. But God is not like that. When God disciplines, when God punishes, it's always to woo and to draw us back to himself, to that which will actually satisfy the longings of our hearts. You see, God's purposes always include redemption. And that's why we can have confidence that our guilt is no match for his mercy. If we are willing to cry out in true repentance, God will hear and God will respond for our good. You know, in Psalm 107, which many believe Jonah was thinking about as he prayed in the belly of the fish, it says this. Some became fools through their rebellious ways. Yeah, like Jonah. And suffered affliction because of their iniquities. Yeah, like Jonah. They loathed food and they drew near the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. He sent forth his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. Let them sacrifice thank offerings and tell of his works with songs of joy. Are you ever glad, I mean really glad, that God doesn't treat us, you and me, like we deserve? I don't believe you really understand the gospel until you come to that point of utter and befuddled thanksgiving that God doesn't treat us as we deserve. So let me draw it to a close with this. You know, in the book Knowledge of the Holy, Tozer also has a chapter on God's attribute of mercy. And in that chapter, he defines mercy as the goodness of God confronting human suffering and guilt. And he goes on to say mercy is the attribute of God as infinite and inexhaustible energy within the divine nature which disposes God to be actively compassionate. Now listen, pay attention. I think this is so great. He says this, mercy is not a temporary mood, but an attribute of God's eternal being. We do not need to fear that someday it will cease to be. Mercy never began to be, but from eternity was. So it will never cease to be. It will never be more since it is in itself infinite, and it will never be less because the infinite cannot suffer diminution. Nothing has occurred or will occur in heaven or earth or hell that can change the tender mercies of our God. Forever his mercies stand, a boundless, overwhelming immensity of divine pity and compassion. Do you hear what he's saying? There is no limit to God's love and mercy 
There is no limit to his power to bless. He gives an overflowing measure far beyond our expectations, far beyond what we deserve. He is both able and willing to give his mercy to those who humble themselves and come to him with their need, even when our need is self-inflicted, even and especially when our need is a result of our sin and our sinful pride. And how do we know for sure? How do we know for sure that that's true? Remember what I read earlier, Tozer says of our condition, years of rebellion against God have bred in us a fear that cannot be overcome in a day. The captured rebel does not enter willingly the presence of the king he has so long fought unsuccessfully to overthrow. But then, then he says, the question becomes, if this is our condition, when we approach God, what will we find him to be like? How will we know what he will be like? And I love this. He says this, the answer is that he will be found to be exactly like Jesus. In him, in Jesus, we learn how God acts toward people. And how did God act toward sinful, rebellious people like you and me? He willingly died in our place. He lived the life we should have lived. And he died the death we should have died. So that we might know that when we cry out, that God will always respond to us in mercy. I started with that song and question, Depths of Mercy. Let me read for you the last three stanzas. I don't know what Charles Wesley was going through in his life, but I can certainly relate to it. He says this, I, my master, have denied. I, have fresh, have crucified. Oft profaned his hallowed name, put him to an open shame. But there for me the Savior stands, shows his wounds and spreads his hands. God is love, I know, I feel. Jesus weeps, but loves me still. Now incline me to repent. Let me now my fall, my sin lament. Now my foul resent, revolt deplore. Weep, believe, and sin no more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your inexhaustible mercy. Thank you that you delight to incline yourself with compassion and mercy to even the guilty, and especially the guilty. So Lord, pound that into our hearts that we might know that when we repent, when we humble ourselves before you, when we cry out to you, you are gracious and kind and merciful. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take our offering now. You can do that online at ethoschicago.com, and then let's sing our doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.
my heart you
Well, hopefully I will see you shortly or we'll have already seen you uh, at our time of communion uh, today at Oz Park. Um, but remember, we're going to do these every two weeks. So we're doing one this Sunday and we'll do one two weeks from now. And also, as I say every week, but we really mean it. And I know that that stimulus package isn't coming. And so if you're in need, financial, emotional, spiritual, physical, please let us know so that we can come and be with you in this time. So with that, let us now receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May he turn his countenance towards you and give you peace. And now as God's people, go in peace and spread God's peace. And all God's people said...